Welcome back to the Get Smart With Money podcast. I'm your host, Dana Hernandez. I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area and worked at a grocery store for almost 10 years. Back then, I didn't know what I should have been doing with the money I was making, but if I had, things would be a lot different for me. Luckily, being a financial planner now in life, I'm getting myself on track, and now I'm on a mission to help others get ahead financially too. I know the struggles, and I'm in this with you. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Get Smart With Money podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Kendria Johnson. She is a teacher, coach, mentor, mother, and grandmother. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. So we had met probably like two months ago. Yeah, now? a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you got on stage. I did too mm-hmm. later. Or maybe I was before you like the day before. But... I was the last one. Remember, I was the very last. Speaker. Okay. Yeah. And <laughs> no, your speech was very powerful. And I would love for you to revisit that speech for everybody. But before we get there, um, how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Oh, wow. So I am a native of Dallas, Texas. And I was born and raised there. I went to school there, went to college there. And became a teacher there. So um, born and raised in uh, the South, good old fashioned South. <laughs> Everything <laughs> is big in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's where I met you. So mm-hmm. everything was definitely bigger and kind of better and <laughs> a lot yeah. more different than what I'm used to for sure. Right. Yeah. It was fun though. That was yeah. fun. It's a fun place to be. Mm-hmm. So you said you became a teacher. So yeah. do you teach a grade? Yeah, I have a, I've been a teacher for like 22 years now and I okay. teach math science. And now I teach a little bit of English too when they ask me to. But uh, I've taught grades all the way from four all the way up to nine, believe it or not. So this year I'm in grade five. Okay. So next year I don't know what I'll be doing. But yeah, this year I'm still teaching grade five. Uh, and I still teach, even though I coach and have a small business on the side, I still teach. And um, speak. I'm a speaker, writer. Um, and so uh, because everybody that's a teacher is not necessarily a speaker. Those are two different gifts. But I, I just happen to have both. Thank you, God. <laughs> <laughs> right. I didn't yeah, mention yeah. that you were an author, author yeah. of three books. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's great. So what are your three books on? First book is about my story. It's a long, long version. This is the longer version of my story because everyone always asks me. Well, the first thing they say is like, oh, you have a a daughter that's an adult? Oh, my gosh, you look so young. Thank you. (laughs) But, yeah, so when they ask me that and I say things like, oh, yeah, she went to Tuskegee and she went to, you know, uh, you know, uh, she graduated top of her class and all that stuff. And she's been uh, recruited by NASA. When I tell that story, they don't know all of the things that happened between, you know, the beginning and the end. Mm -hmm. So that is the longest version of my story that I have on record. I wanted someone um to I wanted to have something a legacy that I could leave behind for my grandchildren's children to make sure that they understood where they came from and the stock that they were made of and that um it is you know it doesn't matter what happened what happens to you in life it just happens matters what you do about it so it's my story that's the first book sorry I, that was a long answer to your question but You're the good. second <laughs> book is just about 
second book is just about uh, my journey here. And then the third book is about uh, Teacher of the Year. It's here behind me. That is about my teaching journey. That is about how hard it is being a teacher and how hard it is to stay in the, in the land of teaching in the world of education with all mm-hmm. the obstacles that are thrown our way. So it may, that, I, it's hard to sum up this one, this, the, the last one, only because it's about burnout, it's about stress management, it's about life and work balance, it's about me, it's about countless, countless of stories of my coworkers and things that I've seen in the profession. And if people ever want to know why teachers quit, read the book. Just read it. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to ask a teacher. You can just read my book, but then ask the teacher: Is it true? Is that true? What she said? Yes, it is true. Wow. Yeah. You know, I never really realized that. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Yeah. I bet you have a a big teacher following because of that. Uh, well, I I I would love to have thousands and millions of te- teachers following me, but that's still in the works. We're still working on it. I have a lot of following here, where I live, because that's my teaching community is quite small. But okay. back home, I'm, I'm hoping to to take my message back home, which is the USA. I don't I don't live in the states anymore. I forgot to mention that. But um, take my message back home and be able to recruit more teachers. Maybe to even come here, or maybe just to get out of that rut and get out of that those situations that don't, do not serve them, because teachers have more power than they know. They just don't use it properly, and yeah. so the system tends to use us instead of us using the system. And that's that's something that I want to put it uh, shine a light on. Okay. In my book. That actually kind of gave me an idea, um, yeah. but I'll catch up with you after on that idea. So that might be something that we could somewhat collab on later, but that's cool. Um, and so what do you coach people on? I coach teachers. Yeah, coach I teachers. coach teachers. Yeah, that's, I'm, that's why I, I, I named myself the teacher coach okay. because all of us have a niche. We all have a niche. All it, 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 life coaching has become so, such a buzzword. It's dull now. When people say you're like, I'm a life coach, people roll their eyes like, oh my god, another one. Yeah. But, but life coaching is basically just helping people get through the parts of their life that they're that they understand. So my my mm-hmm. niche in life is I understand teachers and educators. I understand the world of politics in education. I understand that. So my goal is to open up that door, open up the window, open up something. So I can shine the light on what's what the problem really is versus what, you know, they think it is. OK. Mm-hmm. And as a teacher coach, I tell people I usually attract or I, I, I try to attract teachers who were just like me at one point, just burnt out. Just I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. this. is just getting on my nerve. All these things are happening. I don't know what to do. I'm, to do, I'm about to leave. I don't want to quit. And I want to talk to that teacher. That's the teacher I market to. I want to talk to that teacher so that we can have uh, at least a three day workshop or maybe one day seminar we can talk and about, about, you know, what the problem is or what you think it is. And then we get down and peel some layers off and find out what the problem is, sometimes is, because it's not always the issue. It's not always the system or the school or the principal. Sometimes it's us doing mm-hmm. too much, trying to please the right, the wrong people and not taking care of ourselves and putting ourselves first. Okay. Wow. I love that. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. There's probably... A very small amount of people doing what you do. Yeah, yeah, it is <laughs> very much very small. So that's why it's a niche, and that's why it's like I need to go bigger. I need to go bigger. I need to go bigger. I'm yeah. speaking in uh, Saudi Arabia next month. Um, hoping okay. to go bigger. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Do you know how many people you're speaking in front of? I don't. It's usually about a thousand people at these things, and <laughs> I'm hoping that it'll be double that because it's Saudi Arabia. So they're all going to come to the capital. 
and let, it might be double, it might be triple that. So it'll it, it, even if it's a hundred people, I'm good. Yeah. I don't. I don't. A stage doesn't bother me at all. But um, hoping to make it bigger. So I could tell that. <laughs> you were really good on stage. That's why I was yeah. like, you know what? I want to have her on my show. <laughs> so. Yeah. So yeah, let's just get into what you talked about on stage. Um, however long you want to go is totally fine because you said okay. you squished it down to five minutes, but it's very difficult. It to was, squish it down. yeah, <laughs> it was so good. I was just like, oh my god! Like, so please share. Okay, well, my story is very, very unique in that you know uh, I always say that my story begins and ends. And uh, late fall to 1989. So if I could just take you there, if you could just close your eyes for a second and just bear with me and take you all the way back to what you were doing in 1989, November, specifically. And I was in a hospital room. And in this hospital room, I it was the day I actually had been dreading for the whole, the last year. It's the, it's the day I was, uh, was supposed to let my family meet my daughter for the first time. And I was dreading this because um, I'm in the hospital room, have just having given birth to my daughter, and I was 14 years old. So I had decided that um, this was going to be the last day of my life. I was going to let them come see the baby, and that I had already planned out what I was going to do when I got home because I didn't want to live anymore. The amount of shame and degradation and the amount of uh, humiliation that I endured during my pregnancy was was just too much for me. I was 14, unwed, living at home, uh, father nowhere to be seen, nowhere to be found. And all of that shame that I felt getting myself into that situation, and you can't hide it. There's nowhere you can hide it. It's, it's yeah. there for everybody to see. And so this was the day I had been dreading because everybody's coming to see me. Everyone's coming to see the baby. And I had to put on a really, really brave face because I knew that that was going to be probably the last day of my life because I was going to end my life. I had already decided, made the decision. I didn't want to do it while I was still carrying uh, my child because that's not fair to her. Uh, I didn't know it was a girl at the time, but it wasn't fair to the, to the baby. And I was like, well, when I have this child and I'm gone, someone else can take care of her. That's the first thing I thought. And I, I didn't want to be this child's mother. So I would contemplate when she was born, once she was here, I was like, I don't deserve to be the child mother. I would look at her and stare into her eyes and say, I just, I don't deserve this. This child, this child deserves something better than me. I'm, I'm too stupid to be this child's mother. I'm, I'm, I'm too young to be this child's mother. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I didn't pick the right father for this child. Who am I to think that I could do something like this? What am I doing here? And so I, all these thoughts came to me and I just knew that that was the only solution that I had was to end my life and to leave the child to be raised on my family. And what's different about this story is that the day that they came in, I knew they were coming, but I still wasn't ready. So I sat in my hospital bed. And at this point, my hospital bed might as well have been a coffin. And I was, I might as well have been a coffin because I'm sitting there and everybody's looking at me and staring at me and they're smiling. But there's this really uneasy tension in the air. You can, you know it's there and you can cut it with a knife, but you don't know exactly what's that, what's there. And everybody's smiling and say, oh, she's so cute. And, oh, you know, this is, yeah, how are you? And then my mom comes in, my grandmother comes in, and my cousins come in, my aunt comes in, uh, the little cousins come in, everybody coming in and say hi to me. And they was like, let me see the baby. 
Then my aunt comes. My 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 mother's younger sister comes in. Now my aunt is different. My aunt is one of those people that she often says what other people are thinking, and she's not always polite about it. Mm. Raise your hand, <laughs> raise your hand if you got that kind of aunt in your family. You got that kind of relative. She's not always nice when she says the things she says, and she's always saying what people are thinking. So she comes in very loud and she says, you know, oh, let me see the baby. Let me see her. Let me see her. Oh, let me see her. She takes, she takes my daughter in her hands and she looks at her and she says, you know, oh, she's really, really cute. Mm, she don't look like you. Mm. And so she was like, and then she goes on and says, oh, she got three eyes. I wonder where she got that from. <laughs> I wonder where she got that from. I guess her daddy, whoever that is. And she hands the baby back to my mom. And everybody's still smiling, but then she they walk out. They all walk out together. And I could hear very clearly my aunt in the hallway saying, this is the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. And something happened to me in that moment. I just, something happened to me. It's almost like God himself reached down from heaven and, and flipped a switch inside of my back and said, stand up straight. Stand, put your head up. And I looked straight ahead and I didn't know what I was looking at, but I looked straight ahead because I was angry. But I was, I was raised not to speak back to my elders because, you know, I'm still a child. I'm still 14. And so I'm raised to believe that you don't talk back to your elders and you don't say anything negative back to people, even if they said something ugly to you. But I remember in that moment being left holding my child in, the, in that room that might as well have been, you know, a coffin that, I, I can't leave my child. I, I can't do this. I just, I can't. I, I, it was in that moment that my aunt said that, that I said, I, I, I can't in my, I can't leave my child with these people, not these people. And I looked at my child. I remember this. I looked at, like, looked at my child. I said, I don't know how we're going to do this. We got work to do. And from that moment to this moment, I was determined to be everything that they thought that I would never be. Whatever my aunt and my family thought that I would never be, I was going to be that. Whatever they thought I was never going to have, I was going to have that and then some. <laughs> and so the first the first goal I had was to graduate high school. And, you know, they they said, yeah, you, go, you better graduate. You, we be, you better graduate. You know, you, you know we, we, we hoping that you graduate, but we don't know now because you got a baby. And I was like, all right, mm-hmm, watch me. So I graduated high school with a three-year-old. <laughs> and on my graduation... I said, I think I want to go to college. And they laughed at me. They they laughed. They were like, huh. <laughs> college. All right, you need to be worried about getting a job so you can take care of this baby. And I said, like, I'm going to take care of this baby and I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm still going to school. And so, you know, sometime later and a lot of struggling later, I actually did finish my, my bachelor's degree. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And so that was check, check number two. And then I said, I think I want to, you know, go into teaching. I want to do something where I don't have, a, I, I, would, I didn't want a job. I wanted a career, right? So I announced this at, a, you know, one of the family gatherings. And they were like, you, a teacher. Like, don't you have to be smart to be a teacher? You know, they would just <laughs> say these ugly things, you know, these, these microaggressions against me. Oh and I would say things like, you know, I am smart. I'm the first one in the family to get a bachelor's degree. You get a degree of any kind, all right? Excuse me, I'm sorry. And so eventually I was like, okay, yeah. So I went back to school and got a master's degree. Went back to school and got my my teaching certificate and I started to teach. And fast forward, I guess about 18, 20 years later, that child that I had and that that watched me graduate from high school, check, graduate from college, check, get a master's degree, check, and start to become a teacher, check, 
that same child that I had 18 years ago or 20 years ago went to college herself. And she went to, uh, she got a full ride at uh, Tuskegee University. Tuskegee mm-hmm. University is a very prestigious HBCU. And she, that's because that's where she wanted to go. And she studied uh, math. She was a math major. My child, my child is a math genius. Wow. By the way. Yeah, she's a math. She's really good at math. She's she's my she's my own personal hidden figure. <laughs> if you know that movie. But um, um, so she wanted to study math. So she studied finance and accounting. She got um, she got she had the top of her class. She graduated magna cum laude from Tuskegee University. And NASA was one of the people that recruited her. It was NASA and Boeing. And she chose NASA. And she, my daughter's never had to look for a job because the job came to her right out of college. Wow. So she interned with them for two summers. And eventually she uh, started working for NASA. And she's been working for NASA ever since. So when I tell my story and I talk about the beginning and the end, nobody ever wants to hear about the middle. It was a struggle. It was a fight. It was I was I was going up against the most negative things and negative comments you could ever imagine. And they weren't from people from the outside. They weren't from people off the street. They weren't from people at school. They weren't from people. They definitely weren't from people at school because they were in the same situation I was in. So it was it was it was a mental and emotional battle for me to get where I am. But I always like to say uh, I'm the exception to every rule that was made for me. I am, you know, uh, um, a uh, an underdog. And everybody likes to root for the underdog, right? So I, I was that person that wasn't supposed to be anything. And yet I am the first person in my family to go to college and graduate. And I was the first person to get a master's degree. And with that teaching career, I've taught in two different countries. And like I said, I've been teaching 20 something years. I've taught in two different countries and I've taught every grade, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and math and science. Dummies don't do that. Stupid people don't do that. They don't teach math and science. So all the things that I was taught about myself, I had to unlearn. And all the things that I became, I had to learn. And I'm still learning and I'm not done learning, but I enjoy, I'm enjoying the journey. And that is how I became the teacher coach. Oh, God. <laughs> Such a good story. What made you want to move out of the country? Oh, that's that, that is a story. And so that's the story about that book right there. But it started <laughs> like halfway through my career. It was about that halfway point, 22 years. So about year 10. I started to feel the just crunch of all of the politics that goes along with it. First, it was a honeymoon stage where I just loved it. I did. I loved teaching. I loved being around kids. I loved being able to teach them something that they didn't know before and, it, and I can take the credit for it. But then it started to weigh heavy on me because I taught in a very high-risk neighborhood, very uh, low-income, high-risk neighborhood, a lot, of, a lot of crime, a lot of drugs, and some gangs. And it started to really just go into my soul. It started to take its toll on my soul because I would take the problems of the kids home. Yeah. You know, when the kids are homeless or they didn't have enough food to eat or they were living um, out of cars or living with relatives because their mom and dad is in jail, that would hit home to me. Not only did it resonate to me as a person who had gone through, you know, emotional trauma, it also resonated where I was like, let me see what I can do to pour in. So I would pour and pour and poor and poor. And I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine. Close your eyes for just a second. Imagine. Get a visual of a, of, a, of a teacher with 30 students in a room and you're pouring knowledge into each one of them. Every single day. Seven times a day. Because normally our, our schedules are seven. Seven classes. Yeah. A day. Oh, yeah wow. And you just, just imagine what I'm pouring out every day and I wasn't refilling my cup. 
So every day I'm just giving, giving, giving the best of who I am and giving the knowledge. But half of my job is teaching and the other half is discipline. So I'm giving myself to, to them every single day, trying to get them to act right first and sit down and listen to me. And then the other half, I'm teaching them all the things that I know. And I'm trying to get it all in there, right? Some of it is spilling out. Some of it is sticking. Some of it is not. Or they get a drop of the, all, the, all the stuff that I give them. And I realized after year 10 that I, I, was, I was exhausted. I was tired all the time. I was tired when I woke up and I was tired before I went to bed and I was tired at school and I was tired at lunch and I was tired, you know, I was always mm-hmm. tired. And it, was, it wasn't just physically, it was mentally and emotionally too. And there was no language for me to say, you know, there was no one for me to really go to and say, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I can make I do this another five or six years. I'm, I'm kind of tired. I need a break. Oh, girl, you get summers off. But all the teachers out there will tell you summers are not enough. You, summers is just the time you take to recover from all the trauma that you went through for the year. <laughs> By the time you recover from it, it's time to go back to it yeah. in September, October or, uh, or August. And so I, I was like, I don't know what's happening to me. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't eating well. I wasn't feeling well. Um, and so my, bow, my, 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 my physical body started to take a hit for the physical, the emotional stress injury, drain I was under. And um, I think I talked to one person. I talked to one person that actually gave me some, some advice that was actually helpful. And she said, I think you're experiencing what they call burnout. And it's, it's just, and she wasn't a teacher either. She was a psychologist, believe it or not. And she was like, you're going to have to do some mental exercises to help yourself get back to the right state of mind and get yourself balanced. You don't seem to be out of balance because I, I wasn't hanging out with my friends. I was always, I was always in a fog. Even when I was with people, I was just like this. And I had heart palpitations and I had my hair was starting to fall out. And oh, wow. uh, right. Because I, I wasn't taking care of myself and I wasn't, you know, eating right and trying to I would just go to bed just to wake up, and do the same thing over and over and over. And I wasn't and I was yeah. having 12 hour days because I was a teacher and a coach. So that meant I had, you know, a bunch of girls that that, that really needed me after school that I had to be there for. If oh, we had man. a game. Right. If we had a game, I didn't get home until 11 o'clock because I had to wait till all the kids go home. You can't leave. The coach can't leave the kids at the school. You have to stay there until they leave. So yeah. I have to stay there till 1030 till they leave and then get home at 11. And then I have to go to sleep and get up and do the same thing the next day. So it was a oh, lot. Man. And teachers everywhere know exactly what I what the stress is that I'm talking about. But I had no coping skills and no mechanisms and no, no systems in place to help me fix whatever was broken inside of me. And so I said, enough is enough. So I don't, I don't know if I can do this anymore. So I knew that that was going to be my last year because I visited the, the hospital six times. I'd been in an emergency six times within a year, within a nine-month period span. I had a hospital visit that was five days long because I had passed out at, at, at home. And I had um, a rash that broke out of all 60% of my body. And they had to put me on antibiotics. And I was in hospital for 60, six, uh, five days for that. Wow. That was the straw. That was the straw right there. I was like, I can't. My job should not be killing me. I should not right. be killing myself trying to do my job. And so I was like, I knew that that was my last year at that school. I knew that was the last year for me to teach there. And and I, you know, I, I went on some interviews for this, for this job. And I was like, I don't think I need to go to leave the country, do I? No, I think I did. No, I don't know. No, I should. And I did that for three months. I did that for three months. Like, no, I don't. No, I should. Yes, I should. No. And I'd wake up every day with a different mindset. And then that last day of work that I had to put in, they made me so mad that I was like, you know what? I don't ever have to see you people again, ever. I don't ever have to look at you. I don't talk to you. We're done. 
And so that was when I made up my mind that, you know what, I'm going to get on this plane. Didn't know what was in front of me, didn't know where I was going. I literally did not know where Abu Dhabi was on the map. I thought Abu Dhabi and Dubai were in Saudi Arabia. That's how smart I was about geography. They bad. <laughs> so I had no idea where I was going. I just said, yes, go ahead and send me that ticket because they wanted qualified math and science teachers here. <laughs> they were paying top dollar for us. So I was like, okay, fine. Somebody wants me somewhere else. I'm going to go do that because clearly I'm not appreciated in Dallas, Texas. So I got on the plane and there was immediate sense of relief and calm when I got off of the plane. Now, this is a Muslim country and I'm a Christian woman, but still I felt like God was here waiting for me when I got off the plane. And it was almost when I went to the first two weeks of school here, I was like, it's almost God saying, you know, take a rest, take a rest, take a breather, take off all of that stuff that would, that, that baggage that you're carrying from home and, you know, release that because teaching does not have to be like it was back home. It just doesn't. And so I would leave work at 1.30 and get home at 2. That's nothing That's that's nothing like teaching in the U.S. of A. They don't have overtime here. They don't have um, programs where we have to stay and coach after school. You don't have to be there at 6 a.m. in order to get your lessons done before the kids get there. Oh, it's wow. not like that here. The quality of life is a lot different here. And the sun is shining every single day. So there's no rainy days. There's no snow. There's no, you know, there's no wind days. There's nothing. <laughs> so it's, 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 it was a different environment and I, and that I needed. I don't think anybody else um, would have been able to do, uh, and no other place in Texas would have been able to do for me what this place had done for me that in that first year. It took me a year to kind of shave off all of those, those norms and all of those, those stresses and stressors that, were, that plagued me back in the States. But I quickly mm-hmm. re- quickly realized that some of that burnout that I was going through and some of those uh, that that imbalance that I was feeling at home was not the school's fault. It was me taking on too much. It was me not being able to say no. It was me not putting up boundaries around you know the things that I enjoy and not doing the things that I enjoy for myself because I was again like I said before I was pouring out of an empty cup. So whose responsibility is it to pour into me? It was mine. Right. It's mine. It's not, it's not a boyfriend's job. It's not a husband's job. It's not my friend's job. It was my responsibility to, you know, re- recharge, reset, you know, get my, you know, groove back. That's my job to do that so I can smile every day and have a, you know, you know, and be, yep. you know, 100% that I needed to be for my kids and for myself. But I had to be 100% for me first so I could have something to give them. But exactly. it took me that long to figure it out. It took me that long to figure it out. So me being who I am, I'm a writer. I journal. I wrote all of my thoughts and feelings down in a journal. And I did these three things. And this is what I talk about in the book. And this is where this last book came from. The three things that I did differently when I came here is, number one, I prioritized me. And it was all about me. What, what do I like? I like massages. I like long walks. Let's do that then. Okay. So I put myself first. Then I, I, I visited the doctor. I actually went to a psychiatrist. I did because I knew that the psychiatrist could prescribe drugs. And I knew that there was a chemical imbalance in my body and my body only because even when I wanted to be happy, I couldn't. Even when I wanted to you know, get myself out of it, I couldn't. So I was like, OK, this is what's happening to me. This is what happened to me back home. This is why I'm here. Can you help me? And she did. She gave me, she prescribed me some antidepressants. I highly recommend mental health professionals to anyone who thinks that they can't afford it or don't they think it's worth it. It absolutely is worth it. I'm a black woman from the South. Yes, I believe in God, but 
that was none of those things were working for me. So I had to go and step out of my comfort zone and do something that I knew would help me. And I had gotten that advice from my friend, the psychologist. And um, the, set, the, the last thing that I did was I made a list of all the things that I wanted to do, all the things that I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to write a book. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to uh, make an impact and help someone else. I wanted to start a business where I was helping someone else. And so for the last nine years that I've been here, that's what I've been doing. I've been working on these books. I've been to over 35 countries in the world. I have um, uh, started a business where I actually teach and coach on the side. I still coach, uh, still teach in the, in the daytime. And then at night I'm on, you know, on my computer with clients and potential clients and I do uh, webinars and seminars and you can find a lot of my stuff on Teachers Pay Teachers. I have a copy of my book is there. I have uh, some some online classes that I've talked talked about with, you know, the balance, the work-life balance that we spoke of earlier. And um, I made it, I, I, I'm making an impact. I'm doing the things that I said I would do and I'm enjoying the journey now. Whereas before I was like pulling a, a boulder uphill now I'm just like, you know, bouncing a ball. It's fun. It's work, but it's fun. I, it, I enjoy my life a lot more. But I wouldn't have gotten there if I didn't make the intentions, if I didn't do the work, if I right. didn't get help to do the work. I needed someone to make me accountable for the things that I said that I wanted, the things that I wanted to do. Well, if you want to be you know, mentally healthy, you're going to have to see a mental health professional because I prayed about it. I went to church. I asked my friends. And we think, you know, you know, if I've done those things that they make that sometimes that's enough. But if it's not changing you from the inside out, then go and do something else. Keep going. Push it further. And no, I didn't tell anybody I was going to see a psychiatrist. No, that was personal. That was private. But now that I'm on the other side of it and I look at the person I used to be versus the person that I am now, then I say, okay, well, then it was worth it. Let me tell someone else. Maybe someone else needs to hear me say that I'm a black woman from the South and I, I believe in God too, but I still needed to get those, those pills. I still needed them. Mm-hmm. So that stigma about, you know, people going to uh, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, you know, Oh, you must be crazy. You feel like you're crazy. You're crazy. I'm, we're, we're trying to change the narrative of that. You yeah. want to change the face of that and say, no, I am not mentally unwell, but I'm not help. I'm not mentally healthy either. So what do I do? Right. And you made the decision to actually reach out for help. So that's awesome. Therapy is good. Mm -hmm. I definitely believe that. Mm -hmm. And I think that your story is going to reach people and they're, they're going to be inspired. Definitely. Um, And can I ask you about your recent medical scare? You're, you seem okay. Uh I am. You can still you can still hear a little <coughs> congestion in my voice now that you said that. Little. You can still hear it a little bit. Well, um, one of the things that I was worried about living here because I live here alone, still single. Um, but I live here alone, and one of the things that worries me sometimes, you know, just have those fears. Yeah. You have to be careful about what you do with those fears because if you don't acknowledge those fears, they creep up in, in your life and you're like, it's my worst yeah. nightmare. But yeah, yeah, one of the things that used to scare me is that I live alone. And what happens if like I have a stroke? What happens if I fall out and pass out? What happens if I, you know, God forbid, because I have asthma. So if I have a, an attack and I can't get to the phone, what happens? What happens? Well, that happened to me two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. I've been, I've had asthma for, I've had been diagnosed with, with, with asthma for about 10 years. So it's late in my life, pretty much I've had it. 
Mm-hmm. And I've had it. And uh, so I have an attack maybe once a year, but they're very mild. I just have to get on mm-hmm. the respirator or go to uh, maybe go. Sometimes I go to the hospital because they have the, the good stuff. I call it the good stuff, not the over-the-counter stuff. And um, but this particular time was extremely different because I think it's just a, a different phase in my life. My body is getting, you know, it's getting older. I know I look great, but, you know, my body's getting older. So it's it started out as a cold, as it always does. I thought it was a cold. It wasn't. I thought it was COVID. It wasn't. <clears throat> I had a fever and I had a really bad cough. And I had an attack. But this one, I was trying to pump at the same time. It wasn't working. If the pump wasn't working, I didn't have any um, um, uh, thing for my nebulizer. So I was standing up to get to go to the the counter to get some water, and I passed out. I felt I felt, I felt myself getting dizzy, and I hit the floor. Mm-hmm. So when I wake up, I call nine nine nine. It's nine 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 here. Yeah. And I can't breathe because now I'm hyperventilating and I'm having an asthma attack. So I can't breathe. So I'm, he's asking me, ma'am, where are you? And I'm like, <laughs> and I couldn't breathe. And so and I couldn't get it. It took me a while to get it out. And then he, I thought I said the right thing, but they went to the wrong place. So I know that it was the right thing. So I, I, I was literally on the floor gasping for air, trying to tell them to come get me. And I, they, you know, and so I was just on the floor, passed out. I was in and out and I was like, and I heard the knock at the door and I climbed to the door and I opened the door and, and they, they came, they rushed in and oh I had God. nothing on but a gown. And so I was, they were, they gave me an, um, uh, they gave me the, the, the breathing treatment and, and I started to feel better, but I was still very lightheaded because I couldn't look straight and I couldn't look up. And so I was very lightheaded. And I, when I stood up, I would get dizzy. And so they so once they gave it to me and I was starting to feel better. I was like, all right, I'm okay now. You can go. You can go. Because I'm so independent, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm so independent. I'm like, this is a message for all the independent people. But um uh I said, like, you can go. It's okay. And they were like, ma'am, you're not okay and you're coming with us. And I was like, but I don't I don't I'm fine. And I'm coughing and coughing and coughing and coughing. And I still couldn't catch my breath. And they kept putting the, the, the thing on the finger where they, they're checking your oxygen and my oxygen wasn't going up. They're like, ma'am, we can either leave you here or you can come back in two hours. You can just come on and come with us because you're not okay. So I go, I get into the ambulance, full lights, full lights. And I'm like, I was so uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. If you've never been a person that that, that is ridden into the, and you just see the ambulance go by and now you're in it, you feel a certain kind of way. Now, most people are probably passed out, but I was fully aware because they had the thing on. On my face, I was fully aware that I was in an ambulance and everybody was moving out of our way. And there was a line of people uh, in my apartment building downstairs, like, oh my God, oh. is she okay? And I was oh, so man. embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. I could, I just like, could you just take me back to my I'm fine. No. So <laughs> I get to the hospital, everything's fine. They check me out. I stay for the night. I get out the next morning. They keep me overnight because they had to put all of these um, IVs into me and all these antibiotics and things into me. And they send me home with a, with a bag full of, of, of medicine. Good and I could bag. not wait to get out of there. I could not wait to get out of there. I was so embarrassed. I called no one. And <laughs> when I finally got home and I started to tell people, and you, at the, two weeks ago, I had no voice. Now it's coming back a little bit. But two weeks ago, I had no voice. And I'm trying to tell them how sick I was. And they were like, hey, you didn't call me. Why didn't you call me? You're supposed to call me with stuff like that. I didn't want to tell my mother. And so eventually, about three days later, I put it on Facebook. I'm like, I'm fine now, but 
And then all these messages start coming in. That's when I saw it. And I was like, oh, my God. My brother was like, you should never. My brother was like, you better call me next time. I'm going to call my my friend that has friends here. Called his friends and said, go over there and check on her. Go over there and see if she's okay. Go over there. And she's like, he's like, next time you need to have a plan in motion. You have to do all this and open your door. That's why I said open your door. If you call 999, open your door so they can get to you just in case you're passed out or unconscious. If you can, if you can, I mean, you, there's nothing you can do about it if you are unconscious, right? right, there's nothing right. You can do. God was, God was there with me, making sure that I was conscious enough to open the door when they were knocking. And um, um, yeah, that was the scariest experience I've had health wise here since I've been here in nine years. I have, you know, bouts of asthma, but you just pump, and then yeah. I'm fine. You take your, take your medicine, and you go back to your your daily routine. But that one put me out of work for at least a week. I was I didn't go to work for a week. So oh, I just man. got back this week. And um yeah, and I yeah. <laughs> How would you say the healthcare is it over there? Oh, it's good. It's it's excellent. I, I work for the government, so everything is pretty free, pretty much free. And like those cool. prescriptions that I bought were like thirteen dollars and it was a big long list of things. Um it's very cheap once you if you have a good plan. If you don't have a good plan, it's just like the like America. Yeah, you don't have good health insurance. It's just like everything else. Mm. You, you got to okay. be thrown to the wolves. They'll get to you when they get to you. But the health care is pretty good here. Some top notch doctors here. I, I don't have any complaints. And they did take care of me. At the, and the EMTs did take care of me. And they did force me to go to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. In the States, if a person says they don't, they don't want to go, they just make you sign a paper and said, all right, we'll leave you here. Just let's, let us know if you die. But these people were like, no, ma'am, you're coming with us. No, yeah. you're coming with us. I'm like, <laughs> Yeah. Note to sell. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I saw your message. Going to the del- yeah, self-care <laughs> also means taking the advice of healthcare professionals and getting your butt up. <laughs> going to the emergency room. I wasn't going to make it to the emergency room by myself. I was in no condition to drive. I wasn't feeling that great. I was mm-hmm. hot and cold. I had a fever. My, high, my blood pressure was really, really high because I was trying to fight this thing off and I was hyperventilating. So Yeah. Yeah, getting older is very is a blessing, but it's a very inconvenient. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that story come through <laughs> on your Facebook, and I was like, "Whoa!" Like, so I waited a little bit, and I was like, "Hey, did you want to do this podcast?" <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm happy you're okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Could have been so much worse, of course. Yeah, this is so. not my morning voice. I put that that picture like this is my morning voice. It is not. This is just me getting over it. It's still got <laughs> another week to go to get out of my system. This bronchitis is not fun. Oh yeah, no, it's not. Well, great. Um, so I'm gonna ask you for all of your links, and I'm gonna okay. put them in the description of the episode. But that was a fantastic conversation. Um, your story, I'm sure, is going to help a lot of people that hear it. So, and awesome. let me catch up with you after. But thank you again <laughs> for being on the show. No worries, no worries. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and thank to your you. listeners, um, you can reach me at uh, www.iamkendriaj.com. That's K-E-N-D-R-I-A-J.com, and uh, my uh, IG is at Teacher of the Year One because apparently there's 12 other teachers of the year but there are none like me but um, my my um, um, it, it's named after my book everything is yeah, teacher of the year my book so the IG following is specifically for people who can resonate with anything that I've said here and then we have some uh, up, 
upcoming workshops coming up. So you want want you might want to get on my email list. So Ooh, when yes. the workshops do come to a USA city, when they do come to USA and and then you're somewhere around because I'm going to come to Dallas first in Cleveland where my daughter lives, and then we'll go somewhere in between. And I'm going to start doing these webinars, these seminars, and do some um, some coaching and coaching in the states because I really want to build up my following there. That sounds really good. I'm going to get on your email list too. <laughs> well, great. That was a good conversation. Thank you again. Thank you. Please like, review, and subscribe to this podcast. And follow me on Instagram at Dana.Hernandez.Agent, as well as checking out our new website, GetSmartWithMoneyPodcast.com.